Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day, and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm surrounded by my stuff. To my right is my ever expanding great library of RPGs and my grognard files. I've also got some of my favourite dog eared anthologies off my bookshelf to talk about. Here on the left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah yes. This time the Eternal Champion appears as her very first assignment, the woman in the Lamb's Navy rum advert, emerging from the sea, looking for adventure. Rum is, of course, the drink of pirates and scallywags, and this podcast is about Chaosium's 1981 box set, Thieves' World. It was based on a series of short stories by some of the biggest names in fantasy and science fiction in the late 70s and early 80s. It was a collaborative project coordinated by Robert Asperin. There were 13 collections, several novels and eventually a graphic novel series featuring the personalities and places of rank and the city of sanctuary. The background goes something like this. During a war in the mountains there was an uprising against the rank and empire. The slaves, body servants, galley slaves and gladiators fled to a fertile place they named Sanctuary. Before long, resources were exploited and run down, and the place of harmony became a pit of crime hidden in the backwater of the empire. The emperor of Rankin exiles his ambitious stepbrother, Cadakithis, to this godforsaken place. On his arrival, he intends to drive law and order with his fearsome troop of soldiers known as the Hellhounds. The characters from the books are colourful and interesting. Jubal is a reformed gladiator trying to carve out a respectable life with his private army of hawksmaths. There's Hans Shadowspawn, the master thief, or Wantham, the landlord of the Vulgunicorn, who runs an extraordinary double life, or Lithandi, the priest of the sect of the Blue Star, who also has a secret. Mitis, the madam from the Street of Red Lanterns, Enos Yarl, the magician, and many, many more in a cast of thousands, each with a unique story to tell. The Thieves World RPG supplement came out in a period of booming creativity for RPG gaming. Chaosium were busily acquiring intellectual property to translate into gaming material. Robert Asperin says, I was doubly pleased when Greg Stafford contacted me about converting the two Thieves World compendiums into a gaming format for Chaosium. Doubly pleased because not only glad that someone else had recognised the gaming potential of my anthology, but because it was Chaosium expressing an interest. In the past, I'd been impressed with the imagination that Greg had shown in White Bear Red Moon. It is an impressive supplement. Not only high standards of production, but the writing is very good too, bringing together the great and good in gaming at the time. Arnson to St Andre, Perrin to Miller. It also adopted the innovative encounter tables developed by the Medchemia Press, 
a group that emerged from the University of California in San Diego. They developed a method of story generation using random tables in the Cities book, first published in 1979. Stephen Abrams and John Everson adapted this method for Thieves' World. If you'd like to see the box in more detail, I've made a 10-minute film which shows the content of the box. I've put a link in the show notes. In this episode, Eddie joins us to open the box of Thieves' World that he found on eBay, reuniting him with a supplement that he first bought about 35 years ago. We go through the contents together, trying to recall what we made of it back then and what we think of it now. I've got California on my mind, so I invited Will Johnson, member of the Grog Squad, to talk about the first game he played, the last game he played, and the game that means everything to him. You might know him better as Friar Tuck from the Robin of Sherwood episode. Good news. At Daily Dwarf is back, back, back with an essay that he's written, but I'll read all about the heyday of White Dwarf in the city. Yes, it's taken 32 episodes and 50-odd podcasts, but he's finally going to look at Irelian. Blythe is back to look in a bit more detail at the content of these world, and we talk about city-based adventures in general. At the end, I'll bring you up to date with some of the latest projects. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. And in this Open Box, I'm in the room of role-playing rambling with Eddie. Hello, Eddie. Hello, Dirk. I'm with Blythe. Hello, Dirk. So, uh, it's a special one, this one. We don't normally, all three of us, get together to do this no, Open Box. It's rare, isn't it? Yes. We invited you, Eddie, for this because Thieves World... You had it, didn't you? You bought I it. I did, yeah. Back in the day, back in nineteen eighty something, it. Uh, I picked it up from. I presume it was Games Workshop, but I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> it was about twenty quid, I think, which was a lot. I think they're all about twenty quid, weren't they? Yeah. The box yeah. sets. Either nine ninety nine or nineteen ninety nine. Standard yeah. price. So we've got a copy here that you've hunted down. This isn't your original copy. No, my original, I think. I've got stolen by you or went over the wall and Rick's lent it. <laughs> it wasn't stolen by me. Right, let's oh. get that on the tape. <laughs> He's accusing me. Look at me, it wasn't me either. <laughs> back, back, in the, back in the time, back in the day, this passed through our hands, this. Yeah, it did. I think we swapped it. All of us had it. We all owned it at one point or other, didn't we? Yeah, and I think it ended up with Simon. I think Simon had it, because Simon... He loved the books, didn't he? He loved the books, yeah. Because yeah. um, he got them, because they were hard to get hold of. They weren't actually published in the UK until later, uh, later on. I think that's right. I remember the game before I read the books. Yeah. The books, yeah. He, he could get hold of them from Odyssey 7 in Manchester, but they were like imports. Yeah, yeah. And they looked very distinctive because they had the yellow the page. Yellow edges. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they did. They had a yellow, yeah, yellow edge paper, didn't they? Yeah. It was a bit rubbish. Yeah. They always had better covers, though. Yes. American imports. Yeah. Just tear them down for British books, I used to know. Yeah. <laughs> Just sensitive British yeah. people who like drinking tea. Yeah. Tone the cover down. Tone it down. Tone it down. <laughs> but yeah, I think it ended up with Sam, but it did pass uh, through our hands because I'm pretty sure that none of us knew what to do with it, really. Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I think we'd, it, it involves all the politics of the city and well, it doesn't have to do, but it, you kind of read into all of that and you think, mm, I'm not quite sure. 
how to use it, how to yeah, create adventures. Yeah. yeah, I think that's it because you're right, it had all the detail in it and you felt somehow at that tender age of 13 or 14 or 15 or whatever we were, yeah. you should you should use all that detail. But as soon as you thought you should use it, you didn't quite know how to use it. Yeah. I think it would right. be interesting now. I think we'd approach it very differently now. Probably get a lot out of it now. But then yeah. it felt a bit perhaps overwhelming in some yeah, respects. Yeah. I always wished I'd bought Pavis or this, yeah. you know, the RuneQuest one. Because yeah. that's a city. Yeah. And when I got that, I was kind of thinking, oh, what can I do? And then mm. handed it round or lent it to somebody or whatever happened to it. We, we, swapped, we swapped it round and I remember, yeah. I, I know that it originated with you, because whenever you opened the box, you could smell patchouli <laughs> oil. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I see it now, I always think I can sense patchouli oil. I wonder so. if I could get a sniffer dog to find it now. <laughs> <laughs> find it if I really have stolen it. <laughs> right in your back room. <laughs> So this copy here is one that you've got from eBay, is it? That's right, yeah. And uh, how much are they going for, now? Well, like, these box sets vary. They're anything from about 20, if you're lucky, up to, you know, 40, 50 quid for the Chaosium box sets. Yeah. Uh, but I was quite lucky with that one. It was on eBay and it was, I think it was up for £30. And I just, I made an offer, I contacted him messaged the guy and said, look, would you take 25? I've only got 30 to spend. Anyway, he said, yeah, so he took 25 and the, whatever, £4 delivery or something, so it was just under 30 quid. It's good to see it here, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. in this open box, we are going to actually open a box. This is a first as <laughs> Are well. you suggesting no. you don't normally? Yeah, no, well, we yeah, don't. We're the security of, uh, of radio. No, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this, this is a, a, an unboxing. They call it, don't they? Yes. Mm. Oh, these influencers, that's what they call Is it. Is that what, yeah. There should be influence, video in this, shouldn't Influence people to track down and out print these world. Yeah. <laughs> First thing to say is the cover, isn't it? Because it's the cover, really, that sells this. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I bought cover. it. Not not for the content, so it was just the cover. We just thought, wow, look at that. I've got a, you've got to adventure in there, haven't you? That's yeah. like a classic good, tavern scene. Good cover, but every, everyone on it's got strange nose. <laughs> These strange nozzles, haven't they? And yeah. Slightly bulbous and weird, weird looking, pronounced, overly pronounced noses, but that, I don't know. Maybe that's just made. a light, I think. Yeah. But it's this guy on the right, it's Urkel, uh, that always <laughs> freaks me out. I don't know where that comes yeah. from. Yeah, see if you want to tell him to get an haircut. Yeah, yeah, it's not right, is He's it? He's one of these unfortunate people who's trying to grow his hair long, <laughs> yeah. but it's not working. He's in between hair cuts, yeah. some, some people, you know, oh, I'm growing my hair long, but it's not working. Did it cut? <laughs> yeah. What I find with it is uh, it's really good because it puts you in the tavern, doesn't it? So yeah. it's yes. looking at you as though you are yeah. the adventure, adventurer. And the more you look at the picture, the more you become aware of some of the shadowy figures behind. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. more you look, because there's, well, at least one, two, three, four in the background, isn't there? Okay, so let's uh, let's open it up. Uh, here we go. Right, so the first thing we've got is KSM Inc. Catalogue. Catalogue, yeah. Have a look at that, see what's on Which there. Which back in the day would have been exciting as as anything else in the box. Yeah, right? yeah. better know. than the game sometimes. Yes, yeah, because yeah, there's no internet, so you, you look to the catalogue yeah, and there's yeah. always things in it that were, were new that you'd never heard of. So on the front page it's uh, Pendragon, and Call of Cthulhu on the inside, Stormbringer. With the masks and the Yeah. We know them all, don't we? 
Eight new KFCM releases. You would have felt slightly faint, wouldn't you, back in the day, getting out of the box? Yeah. You felt slightly delirious. Yeah. The prospect of all you that stuff. Had the money. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't have the money. Didn't have the money. And they were like £4.95. <laughs> no, you still have only had the money, but now they're about 20, 30 quid. <laughs> and you haven't got time to play them. There's the sheet of paper. What's in this box? Yes, yeah, if you didn't know. Yeah. yeah. Just to make sure you've got everything. Yeah. yeah. It's a good idea, though, that really, isn't it? You know, some yeah. accident at the packing factory. Because you never know, would you? You wouldn't know, would you? So let's uh, look at these in order that it suggests uh, in the explanation of parts. So let's uh, start off with Player's Guide to Sanctuary. It's the first. First bit, yeah. So this is like a pamphlet. Did anybody so... read all that? <laughs> I don't think we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it did, but, time, this, but this is the thing, isn't it? You'd look at this, wouldn't you? And it's giving you um, a calendar of events, a little bit of narrative text, a glossary. Where's the adventure in that? As a 12-year-old, 13-year-old? Yeah. Are you going to...? You're not, are you? It's so, got a map in the middle, hasn't it? Plays adventure. So the next bit is the, the Games, Games Master's Guide to Sanctuary. We're going to have a look at this in a bit more detail uh, later on, but this has got all the different... It, it, it's full of maps, isn't it, and yeah, uh, floor yeah. plans, tables that you can roll on, so encounter tables. Yeah, it's got a good reputation for all the encounter tables. Yeah, we're going to, later we're going to have a go at seeing if we can compose an adventure mm. using the encounters. But I think already you can see why we sort of liked it. You can see why we liked it, but you can also see why we were a little bit standoffish around it because mm. that player's guide has a lot of detail in it. And as I think we discussed before, as soon as you get a setting with a lot of detail and a timeline and events and all that, you immediately feel like you're going to break it. Of course, yeah. I, I probably wouldn't now, I wouldn't care now, but back then I thought, oh no, you know, look at this. This, in it, this yeah. is fantastic in one, in one sense, but in another sense, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. Yeah. As if you're not allowed to kill any NPCs. Like you, you or... try to run a scenario where you rob a jeweller's. You'd be spending ages trying to find where the jeweller's is. Yeah. And and if the jeweller's <laughs> a, a main NPC yeah. from the book, you sort of think, oh, I don't know, am I allowed to break, break yeah. the... Yeah, I kind of do that. Yeah, it's that, classic, it's that uh, classic, classic problem with... Um, Storybook with with a kind of setting that's based yeah. on a book. Yeah. But but in a way, it's more problematic because if you think of Stormbringer, um, you can avoid meeting Elric and Moonglum and some of the others. You can kind of easily yeah. avoid that. Even world. even Lord of the Rings, even Merp, you yeah. can avoid meeting Gandalf. But in this, it's pretty much built around the the characters from the mm. books, isn't it? It's that's built right. around that, so it's unavoidable that you're going to meet Jubal and. Hellhounds and Prince What's His Face and stuff, and then you think, oh right, I'm gone. How do I? How do I play these again? Did he run a scenario? He did, yeah. Did he kill Jubilus? We did kill Jubilus. We did. We cut his head off as well, I think. Yeah, we rolled it. Did he say he couldn't do that? Simon said he couldn't do that. He couldn't do that. He said, well, we are going to. It was D and D, wasn't it? So that's right. It was like loosely based on the rules. Loosely based on the rules he didn't have. Because this is a, a generic, and so it's systemless, isn't it? The idea is that you apply it to loads of systems. It yeah. even says that it's one of its selling points is that 
It is for nine different role-playing systems. Oh, that's right, yeah. Was it the first start? I, I'm sure it's the first start I would do something like that. Yeah. Or was that the first of the systemless type books? And I think, I, I, yeah, and I think looking at the front now, I can I can realise and remember now why I um, must have swapped it with one of you because it goes Dragon I ran Dragon Quest and it does it for Dragon Quest, doesn't it? Yeah, Dragon Quest. Yeah. Traveller. Traveller, yeah. Yeah, Traveller, that was always an odd one, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a bit desperate. You could have said eight. Yeah. Traveller in, Jesus, you a traveller? What is it, a planet? You land on a space, you know, a spaceship lands. Lands on a thieves' world. Because it was uh, generic um, in this uh, Games Masters book, it features a lot of essays. And it's got a good one by um, Greg Stafford telling you how to use the book and how to set out and present city scenarios. Mm. So it's trying to train the role play away from the hack and slay mm. um, yeah. that they might have been used to and say, well, look, you know, this other thing. Sit, sit in a city, there's consequences. There's consequences, yeah. laws and, yeah. The city guard are going to catch you. Can't butcher everybody. Unless you're 14, 15, then you do that anyway. You do anyway. You run it And kill Jubal. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's very telling, though, isn't it, that it's for, like, nine systems because... Nowadays, I, I don't think you would get something produced like that. No, nowadays, you would get something that's either just, as they call it, system agnostic. Yeah. Or something that is for one system, but is written in a way that you can easily convert it. Yeah. You know, because I bought that Midlands setting recently, and that's for... Um, Swords and Wizardry, which is a version of D&D. But it's done in such a way that... You can use either. You could use anything, because there's very little in the way of stats, yeah. and even yeah. the monsters, although they're statted for that, you could use them for anything. Mm. Whereas in, in back in the day, this this is very much... It, it's for nine systems. Yeah. It's almost like it doesn't quite trust you to say, we won't give you any stats else. or anything. You come up with the stats for these yeah. characters. We'll yeah. just give you the setting. But so I think nowadays that's what would happen, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. But tra- the Traveller one always puzzled me. I always thought, how does that work? How does it work? This uh, Is it a planet? Is it supposed to be a planet? I probably, yeah, no, I, I think you're supposed to just somehow roll up. I don't know how you get your characters. It gives all the characters... As personalities, yeah, so that's personality the other the another book. book. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. you would get a character because if you're a starship captain or whatever, or a I mean, state I, I or never understood. Did you use traveller? Did you use a traveller system? But it's not traveller, as in it's not science fiction. No, no. Let, well, let's have, let's have a look. Have a look. Let's have, have a look. I want to know. Come on, I um, can't remember. Um, but what it has, so this is in the personalities of uh, Sanctuary. Mm. So what it gives you some preamble for each of the um, systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, just while I'm looking at this, there's fewer uh, illustrations in it than I remember. Mm, yeah, there's fewer. Yeah. That said, I I um I think in looking at it now, I get it mixed up in my memory with the um, Flying Buffalo Cities book. Yeah. I do get it a bit mixed up with that. That was far better, mm. far cheaper. Yeah. In terms of usefulness, I think so. Yeah. That yeah. City book was fantastic. Yeah. Travellers into Thieves' World. Travel is a science fiction role-playing game. I am aware of that. Okay. Continue to try and convince me that it's a work. As such, the integration of Thieves' World into the fabric requires some work. Uh, I bet it does. Uh, in creating rationale for its existence. Your basic assumption must be that the world of rank and empire sanctuary is not fantasy. Instead, it's somewhere based in some 
fabric that composes the travel universe. Putting a new world into that new universe is relatively easy. Less easily does it admit the magic that pervades these worlds. It's tagged in, isn't it? Yeah, it's just stuck in me by it. Oh, Traveller. Only if anybody actually played Traveller with it. Hang on a minute, but if it's a world, it's going to be world N. Stop reading, you've killed it. <laughs> you've killed it. They've, they've turned it into one of those little cords, you've killed it. There you go, forget it. Move on. Let's let's do Dragon Quest or Fantasy Trek or anything but Traveller. Prince Kitty Cat is on there. Kitty Kanye. Kitty Kanye's Kitty Cat. Is that his nickname? His nickname is Kitty Cat. Yeah. 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 Is the cat food? Is it chocolate bar? Kitty there's kitty cat. There's kitty cat. Nine out of ten cats prefer it, don't they? Nine out of ten princes prefer it. There is a kit cat. Hans Sado Spawn. They're all here. Oh yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Danless. Molin Torchholder. Jubal. That's the one that we all remember, isn't it? That's for for reasons we've just explained. Because he killed him. So what, what uh, Greg Stanford advocates is that you spend more time reading the background and being aware of all the gods and all the information mm. than you're doing putting a, a, a scenario together because that could be spontaneous, you encourage spontaneity. Mm. Yeah. I think it might be worth investigating that when we come to look at the, uh, the, the tables. What's interesting is they've got a space there, didn't know how to fill it, so they stuck a D4 in it. <laughs> a D4, yeah. As if you didn't know what one looked like. Yeah. yeah. What else have we got here? It's a load of maps. It's a load of maps, Ooh. and this, this is the best bit. It's what you always wanted, in it? This is the, map, the best so, bit. Because yeah. I think, seeing this, I think seeing this and seeing Irelian transformed how you viewed maps, because you want to draw cities like these, didn't you? You oh, wanted yeah. to create your own yeah. cities. That's right. It wasn't enough just to draw a sector. You had to draw each individual building. Yeah, every single <laughs> yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, every building. And, and when when I did it, they never formed streets. They were just like random boxes. <laughs> yeah. But are they relevant, though? I mean, today, you, you wouldn't do that, would you? You'd just say, describe what you'd be doing and then yeah. you may sketch out the little courtyard where something might... Happen or the building and a building next door where you'd have a burglary or someone escaping from or whatever. You don't need the whole lot. Because why would you have to? Why well, would you, you don't, have to yeah, you don't need the map, do you? I mean, it's like in Dragon Heist that we're playing at the moment. It's set in Waterdeep now. When I got it, the, the map on Roll 20 is, is it for Games Masters. It doesn't have one for players, but I don't think it's impaired your enjoyment. Of no. It. I might be wrong, but I don't think it's impaired your enjoyment that there's no city map no. for you. You know, I just say, right, you go into this quarter or that quarter. Or See, I, I, I agree with you, because obviously I'm a big advocate of theatre of the mind. Theatre of the mind. But there's course. something about when these maps get slapped on the table... That everybody goes, ooh. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh no, definitely. No, I'm not against maps. You do, you probably do need one, and I've got, I've got a map of Waterdeep, so I, I know where things are. But what I'm saying is, does it, it matters less in a way than perhaps you think? You it think does. it does, yeah. It's good for the games master to know where everything is in relation to everything else. Yeah. It, what's not mapped in that big one is the maze. Yeah. The maze. That's got its own map. Yeah. Go on, give us a quote. Only those who seek death or sell it enter the maze. <laughs> Cracking quote. That's a good quote. We've used it all our life about <laughs> and other players. Anywhere we go, it's a little bit iffy. 
Did you know I looked like that? No. <laughs> yeah, that kind of ruins it, doesn't it, to have a map um, yeah. of it. But well, there you go, you see. That's it, isn't it? A map of the maze sort of ruins the maze, the, the, the mystery of it, I suppose, That's right. doesn't it, in yeah. a way? But I do remember creating my own city um, for, for a campaign, and it was clearly inspired by this because I had something like this, and then the underneath bit, the sewers, the underground mm. maze... Where people uh, escape to. If you're desperate for a dungeon, always include the sewers. <laughs> always, yeah, always have the sewers. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I remember when I got Han, and the, the main first initial box set didn't have any cities, and it was a bit. Mm, what can I do with this? It's just a big world, and it, and it has a little bit of history about it, and then an encyclopedia. But as soon as I bought a few weeks later the, I think it was cities or some cities of Han, immediately felt it opened it. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I can do something with this. And it had like six cities in it, I could think, let's get in here now, I can use it. Mm. And, you know, it's good to have a map, good to have a bit of history, but not too much. Not too much. The balance, yeah. the balance the is balance, right. Yeah. You need a bit of colour, but not too much, because right. too much can feel like your hands are tied a little mm. bit. So, I mean, open the box on it, first time in like 30 odd years, 35 yeah. years. Does it inspire you to create adventures in this world? Uh, no, because I've got a hand. <laughs> I don't know, I could do, yeah. I could be a bit more blasé about Yeah, I think you would. The politics you? about it. I think it we all. were quite precious back then and we felt that, like I say, it was untouchable, which you've said that about a lot of settings. I think now, if we played it now, you'd just go for broke, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, you, you just ignore. Yeah, the, re- the realisation now as, as older people that it is all made up. Yeah. Stop being there's, so there's 200 buildings there that you could have a burglary, yeah. you could have a, you know, yeah. a brothel, you could have anything going on, couldn't you? Well, we're going to have a go at creating an adventure using the tables. Yeah. What yeah. system would you use it? Certainly not Shaveler. Well, at the time it was RuneQuest or RuneQuest, yeah. or even RuneQuest, wasn't it? Because that's all we were playing. Well, I, that's, I a good, I think that's a very good question, actually, because I think that some systems lend themselves to cities more than others actually. I think RuneQuest is good for city adventures because yeah. combat in RuneQuest can be quite detailed. So you don't have to have lots of fights because lots of fights in a city environment is problematic because of the consequences. Yeah. So fights are more, I think d and is less suitable for uh, cities. What about using all the elements of uh, these worlds like the maze and the setting, the hellhounds and all that and introducing the tent system Blades in the dark. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. Well, that, I think well, that's the thing. You don't really need. This is what I was saying earlier. The, the idea that it's for on the front, that it's sold for nine. Ooh, nine systems. You don't really need the systems. No. You just no. need the setting, and you can cobble together the the NPCs can be built around the level you want them to be built around. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it's a bit restrictive, isn't it? It's, I can see why they've done it. Because it was a sales pitch, they would have tried to appeal to people who use all those systems to say, "Oh, great, there's this thieves' world," and I think that's why we got we passed it round because we all played some of those games and ran some of those games and would have passed it round going, "I probably thought and, and Dragon well, Quest and Traveller. Oh, go on, I'll, I'll have a look at this." You know, and and as well, it's got um, stat blocks, and you want stat blocks. Yeah, you, you want to design yeah, yeah. stat. No, I, I, the modern games yeah. are very stat block light, aren't they? Yeah. So I don't know about Blades in the Dark, but I don't know how much stats are on NPCs. Yeah. You, want, you, you make want them up to top of your head. And, and certainly for some games more than others, so RuneQuest you always wanted stat blocks because the stats were, were complicated. But yeah. but I think now you 
you could just run it for anything and come up with your own stats. Mm. So in some ways, although that's the big selling point on the front cover, it's actually the least, last thing you need. Yeah. It's the last thing yeah. you need in that box, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you need true. the maps and the setting and the stories and the characters, but you don't need the stats. No. You can do that yourself. So it was inspiring back then, um, but when we opened it, we didn't know what to do with it. Mm. Let's see if we can get something out of it. So no, the, after all this time. After all this time, let's uh, explore it a bit more. But before that, let's uh, just spend a bit of time looking at this catalogue because this is the best thing, isn't it? It's got colour pictures, it's the only thing. Colour, that's why. <laughs> oh, look. All right, thank you very much. Uh, okay. See you later, Eddie. See you. Goodbye. Hi, this is Will Johnson. I'm a grognard living in Central California who's been listening to the grognard files since they came out. I've loved listening as Dirk and Blythe reminisce and uh, discover some new games. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at WillJGames. Uh, Dirk asked me to uh, tell my first, last, and um, the game that currently is I'm obsessed with, and so I thought I would. Uh, the first game I played uh, is D&D's basic set, uh, like a lot of people, I think. So as a kid, I'd read a lot of uh, mythology, Greek, Roman, Indian, um, Native American, Celtic. I, I, was, I just loved it. And, but I really hadn't discovered fantasy books and, until 1978 when I was 10, and my best friend Mike's mom took the two of us to see Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. It, it just completely blew my mind. It, it was like I'd never seen anything like it. Um, they loaned me the Narnia series to read afterwards and then um, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And then that year for Christmas, Mike received the basic box and the matching box of miniatures from TSR. Uh, I've lost touch with Mike over the years, but I've really never stopped playing D&D in one format or another um, and um, have, have stayed with it. Uh, the last game I've played uh, it was actually last night. I'm pl currently playing in a Pathfinder 1 homebrew game by my friend Mac Martin. It's set in a Bronze Age um, large city, and uh, it's a political game that we're playing. Uh, we're all politicians in charge of a residential neighborhood in the city. Uh, I'm playing a ninja with a couple levels of bard. Uh, it's, it's not your traditional ninja in pathfinder the ninja is kind of a charisma based rogue and um so i'm using a gladius for example um we're making use of a lot of the um downtime rules from uh, the ultimate campaign uh for building like public buildings in our district and such it's, it's been a lot of fun it's very challenging and uh, very different than traditional hack and slash game the game that means everything to me right now, and then this is wildly fluctuates from game system to game system um, as they come out and I'm reading them. But right now I'm just obsessed with Band of Blades. I've got a Tuesday night game every week. And um, it Band of Blades is um, a forged in the dark system. So based on um, Blades in the Dark, which of course is a powered by Apocalypse. Uh, so f inspired by um, Apocalypse World. Um, but um, this one's interesting that the games tell uh, the, the players tell the story of a legion of mercenaries who've just really been wiped out by these armies of undead. You're down to about 40 members and you're desperately trying to fall back to your home country to, to mount a defense there. 
Um, and so each player has a permanent character that they play that's sort of in a command position. Those characters really don't adventure or go anywhere, but they make the decisions uh, um, with regard to the Legion itself. And then um, each session you sort of play a rotating cast of uh, the surviving uh, rookies, soldiers, and specialists who go on missions uh, each session. Um, it, it definitely has the feel of uh, the Black Company series of books by Glenn Cook, especially that period where they're down to about eight soldiers and they're marching home and um, trying to recruit as they go. Uh, I'm Out of the group of people playing, I'm the only one that's read those books, and so I sort of leaped at the opportunity to play the lore master for our Legion. So it's my job to keep the chronicles and tell the tales of uh, the Legion's history. Um, it's been an absolute blast, and I'm really looking forward to running this. Um, so that's uh, something to look forward to here. Anyway, um, that's that's my first last in my current obsession. I'm sure next week I'll have something else I'm obsessed with. But uh, um, I thank uh, Dirk for giving me the opportunity to record this. Anyway, talk to you later. White Dwarf! White Dwarf in the City. Lankmar, Imra, Sanctuary. Given the many amazing cities in fantasy literature, it was only a matter of time before RPG scenarios left the dungeons and sought adventure amongst both the lofty spires and dim dark alleyways of the urban landscape. Cities had something for everyone, an intoxicating mix of high adventure and low cunning. If players wanted to engage in the political manoeuvring of the rich and powerful, they could mix it up with the invincible overlords and the world emperors in their ivory towers. But equally, adventure was also available down in the dirt at street level. Low down skullduggery among the beggars, cutpurses and assassins. And of course, down these mean streets, White Dwarf magazine went, providing many great city-based articles and scenarios. So, in this episode, where we celebrate Ed's acquisition of Chaosium's classic Thieves World Supplement, 10 out of 10 from Oliver Dickinson, in issue 30, Review Fans, let's take a look at some of those features. Starting in issue 29, Paul Vernon gave us the article Designing a Quasi-Medieval Society for D&D, following up on that immediately with The Town Planner. Together, they provided a bold, five-issue-spanning look at how to effectively design and run towns and cities in fantasy games. Drawing from history, his quest was to help the GM with the internal consistency and verisimilitude of the urban settings. Designing a quasi-medieval society for D&D did exactly what it said on the tin, with the focus very squarely on money. Since the precise value of the gold piece in AD&D was a little woolly and seemed to change according to the circumstance, in this article Paul Vernon introduced the ale standard with a pint costing five copper pieces in AD&D and 50p in the real world at the time. I felt a disturbance in the force as if a million bearded middle-aged blokes let out a plaintive sigh and then were silent. That meant that one silver piece equaled one pound, one gold piece was twenty pounds, and so on. That appeared to apply reasonably well, with a few anomalies, to prices in the Dungeon Master's Guide, and was helpful for calculating the cost of items not listed by Gary Gygax. 
with the ale standard in place, the wages for the various people that the player characters would encounter in towns and cities would be determined. Paul listed the incomes of craftsmen, smiths, armourers and jewellers, mercenaries, merchants, labourers, innkeepers and so on, with an impressive attention to detail. Even if calculating the earnings of the master craftsman veered dangerously close to the monster mark equation. The point of all these income calculations? Well, they provided a guide to how much money a non-player character might have on them, their social level and kind of influence they could wield, what kind of dwelling they had, how much money they had stashed there. The data was very useful in establishing the social hierarchies that would exist in medieval cities, and so help in determining on how all these non-player characters would interact with the player characters. Suffice to say, if the PCs were planning on hiring the services of any of these professionals, they're going to have to raid quite a few steadings, glacial rifts and halls to pay for it all. In The Town Planner, Paul Vernon widened his scope to designing and running urban settlements, from small villages to large cities, while at the same time maintaining the attention to detail of his earlier article. The first part of this series gave advice on designing and running villages. He earned some bonus points from me at the outset by praising Albi Fiore and the village featured in his scenario, The Halls of Tizenthane. The emphasis was on plausibility, getting the GM to answer questions like Why was the village sited in this location? How did the villagers make a living? What significant features did the village have beyond a trading post selling adventurous stuff? He skirted quickly past the subject of churches and religion, maybe not wanting to cause any offence. We all know what the White Dwarf letters page could be like. He then delved deep into the typical population of a fantasy medieval village. This was more than a little dry for my taste, and felt a bit like a history lesson on occasion. Paul Vernon then moved to look at larger settlements, how a city evolves and grows, its background, its economics, transport and topography, illustrating his points with examples from British history, including a tiny 17th century map of the town of Stamford. I doubt that my 12-year-old eyes were capable of reading that. My current ones more certainly aren't. The details kept coming, with coverage of various systems of government, law and order, and the minutiae of various civic roles, focusing on ambition and revenge, and how to weave adventures into city politics. Paul Vernon suggested drawing a large-scale plan showing the street pattern, walls and main buildings. Ah, That was veering dangerously into homework territory for me. Thankfully, the articles did also address the differences in fantasy medieval cities, with some coverage of magical colleges and some of the machinations of the Thieves and Assassins Guild. He finished the whole series off with some urban encounter tables. Come on, just wouldn't be a D&D article without a table or two to roll on. Reading this whole article series again recently, it's undoubtedly packed with information and rewards repeated reading. As I said, it is a bit dry at times. The details of the Burgage tenor have yet to come in in any of the RPG sessions that I've ever been in. And, more than once, I found myself getting lost in the finer points. Embedded in all those facts and figures, I sometimes lost sight of the gaming relevance. 
Conversely, I think the depth and exhaustivity is what gives the article and series its potency and accounts for its ongoing popularity all these years later. You may not use all of it, maybe not even half of it, but it's good to know that Paul Vernon thought it through and it all hangs together. Cherry pick the bits that you want. They will enhance the design of your fantasy city and deepen its authenticity. And if nothing else, having those articles in your back pocket is a great way to keep that awkward player with the history degree quiet. Paul Vernon's article, Epic, was very much the first and last word on cities in fantasy RPGs, so much so that nobody attempted anything similar in White Dwarf again. What about science fiction RPGs? Well, the nearest equivalent was probably Happy Landings by Thomas M. Price. But this was focused on starport design rather than cities per se. SF fans loved their tech, so we had more details on parking bays and blast protective walls, accompanied by some evocative illustrations and diagrams. There was also a brief mention of Star Town attached to the port, a kind of far future Las Vegas, with opportunities for illegal and immoral activities if desired. This was targeted at traveller players after all. It did end with an inspiring exhortation. Don't think big, think huge. Good stuff. But a bit slight, nowhere near the scale of Paul Vernon's opus. When it came to scenarios, Paul Vernon took all his ideas from the town planner and created Ember Trees, an authentic medieval village ripe with intrigue, danger and adventure. In his memorable mini-epic, Troubles at Ember Trees, in issue 34. We've covered that on the pod before though, so for a more detailed look, head over to the AD&D episode. Link in the show notes as they say. He further developed the setting in the now elusive Starstone from Northern Sages, which these days on eBay will cost you not just a kidney, but your pancreas and a chunk of liver too. Issue 37 featured Graham Davis's AD&D scenario, A City in the Swamp. While it did have city in the title, this was an evocative adventure with real swords and sorcery. The city in question being flooded, a ruined alien city rising from the heart of a swamp. Okay, it's not really an urban adventure, but still. Also featuring Batratium gods and Sala and the Slad one of the more impressive monsters from the Fiend folio. The scenario certainly delivered. It wasn't long before Marcus L. Rowland got in on the act, three issues later to be precise, delivering a genuine city-based adventure in Eagle Hunt, where the player characters had to find and then infiltrate an assassin's guild to take back a stolen MacGuffin of unknown power. It was a chance to use his detective character class from back in issue 24, which was also laced with typical Marcus Rowland humour. The girl who works for the detective agency was called Velma, although her familiar was a cat, not a cowardly Great Dane with a speech impediment. The detective agency and the Assassin's Guild were well detailed, and the adventure itself was nicely open-ended, with fortune more likely to favour the party that didn't go in all guns blazing. Advice was also given on how the adventure could be expanded, and this being Marcus Rowland, of course, it had to include an element of time travel. The great city of London featured not in one, 
but in two white dwarf scenarios. The first was Jay Campbell's An Alien Werewolf in London for Traveller issue 62. With terror lurking on the fog-shrouded streets of old London town, this adventure effectively created the squalid, claustrophobic, dangerous ambience of the Victorian era, which made for a very atmospheric setting. Of course, the players had to buy into the conceit of time travel and with the fairly rigid timeline of events specified, some work was required of the games master to ensure that the players weren't railroaded too much. A novel scenario though, and great fun as a one-shot. As Dr Johnson famously said, when man is tired of a homicidal varga stalking the streets of Whitechapel, he is tired of life. Or something like that, anyway. The other appearance of the Old Smoke was in Marcus Rowland's Call of Cthulhu adventure, Curse of the Bone. While it featured a classic Cthulhu monster, the edgy backstreet setting also evoked the urban horror of Ramsay Campbell, in my mind. Again, this is a scenario we've covered in an earlier pod, so I won't go over it again here. But enough of this waffle. I know it. You know it. I've been dancing around it for long enough. It's time to address the behemoth in the room. There is nowhere else you will only tread a circle. There's not a road, not a track, but it will lead you there. For everything comes to Irelian. Yes, the grog pod is finally looking at Daniel Colleton's Tour de Force a combination of an adventure. The Rising of the Dark, a fully detailed fantasy town, complete with its own language, calendar and religions. This was by some stretch the longest feature ever published in the RPG heyday of White Dwarf. Each part contained the continuation of the scenario, followed by an in-depth look at a region of the town, its buildings, its institutions and major NPCs. So, the scenario first. It started fairly low-key, with the player characters tasked with defending a dwarf caravan headed to Irelian. One orc warband ambushed later, though, and the party found themselves in possession of a fairy silver scroll, warning of an approaching doom for the town. The atmosphere was cranked up a notch as the player characters approached Irelian via its graveyard beyond the city wall. Delivering the scroll to the abbey within the town then led the characters through a succession of locations and adventures and encounters with various exposition-spouting NPCs. Along the way, they would encounter secret temples, evil grimoire, a staff of law, or maybe Daniel Colleton was also a Thomas Covenant fan, the nefarious city council, rightly suspicious of the party and their habit of always being around when the dire events befell the town, all the while battling the evils of the dark and its increasing grip on the town's populace. The adventure was structured very much like the onion skin model, with the discovery of a key clue at one location leading on to the next, and it employed some arresting imagery to create a real sense of danger and threat within the town. I've seen some criticism online that the adventure was too on rails, and to a degree, that's true. 
The primary purpose of the scenario was really to lead the players to discover the rich variety of locations within the town's walls. The ending was also a little too scripted for my liking. While one character would be called upon to make a sacrifice for the greater good of Irelian, the others in the party were in danger of being idle bystanders. However, the scenario provided a structure around which the GM could easily improvise. With the rich cast of NPCs provided, the Games Master could easily flesh out the adventure with side quests and complications for the player characters to produce something a bit more sandboxy. What about the town of Irelian itself? From the outset it was clear that it wasn't a shiny fantasy city, but a grimy town of dirt, suspicion and secrets. A sidebar in the first part cheerfully announced that virtually everyone in Irelian can be bribed. That first part, of course, also gave the details of the town's calendar, festivals, religions and deities. Even its own Chaucerian language, described as being something like English with a Scandinavian accent. I've said before that all that detail put me off at the time. It never occurred to me that I could have just dropped the things I didn't like. Reading it back again, rather than it being intimidating, I found that the continued use of the faux oldie English argot more annoying than anything else. An unnecessary affectation that just kept getting in the way. But maybe that's just me. What wasn't in doubt though was that, like Paul Vernon before him, Daniel Colleton's ambition and attention to detail helped to develop a very immersive experience. Mapped to a high degree, no stone was left unturned. He paid particular attention to the dirty, narrow, overcrowded streets populated by beggars, peddlers and ne'er-do-wells and the iniquitous haunts, including Irelian's many notorious inns. A nice touch here that each inn had its own rating on the likelihood of a brawl breaking out. He even provided us with some detailed rules on drug addiction. The great and good of Irelian were also covered, with descriptions of the main temple, the monastery, peopled by warrior monks, implacably opposed to chaos, and the council house, complete with the rival factions of councillors. There was plenty of scope for the player characters to become embroiled in these political massignations. The impression given was that the towns high and mighty were caught up in their own squabbles and secrets, neglecting the people as a whole resulting in the town not being that far from riots and potential descent into mob rule, a real tinderbox. It had the thieves and assassins guilds that you'd expect, but it also had a psionic fellowship, an anti-slavery society, even a guild for adventurers who'd fallen on our times. It was clear that Daniel Colleton was thinking long-term, how to make Irelian useful for gamers beyond the adventure itself. Nowhere was this more evident than in the rich cast of NPCs. As well as the aforementioned Machiavellian councillors, Irelian boasted an embittered dwarf moneylender, a sage who hid his unfortunate lycanthropic tendencies, an irretrievably damned drow necromancer, ruthless bounty hunters, a hard-headed hurus, a solitary committed graveyard keeper, among many other colourful characters. With all this detail, even across six parts, each one felt packed, bursting with ideas, 
using a dense layout and a necessarily small font to pack all the goodness in. One unfortunate result of this high word count was that the space for the illustrations was limited. Those that were came from the great Gary Chalk in his instantly recognisable, beautifully detailed style with characteristic charm and tongue-in-cheek humour. It was just a shame that there weren't more of them. It's tantalising to think of all the images that Gary Chalk could have created, inspired by Irelian, given free reign. To this day, Irelian remains one of the most popular features from the halcyon days of White Dwarf, still held in high affection by many. But it's more than that. Irelian was very much a product of the magazine itself, by which I mean Daniel Colleton was clearly influenced by the earlier features, Irelian being a result. Paul Vernon's article series was an obvious inspiration and was name-checked several times, but Daniel also included character classes like the Necromancer and the Hori, plenty of magic items from the treasure chest, as well as some of Fiend Factory's finest. Oh, didn't I mention, there's also monsters skulking in the shadows too. He was clearly a long-time White Dwarf reader, not one of those exotically named RPG writers. No, he was one of us. One more thing. They say a picture paints a thousand words. You're still looking for inspiration for your fantasy city. Look no further than the cover of White Dwarf issue 42 by John Blanche. One of the greatest White Dwarf covers. High praise indeed. It's all there. A high tower in the distance is encircled by crackling magical energy. Thieves go about their business silently across the rooftops, while in the foreground a maze of shadowy, grimy alleyways lead you to who knows where. He can't help but be drawn into the picture, step by step, knowing that adventure awaits. Gamesmaster Screen! Welcome to the room of role-playing rambling. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. And uh, this time we're exploring Thieves World, uh, Chaos AM supplement from 1981. You've got to say that 1981 is objectively the greatest year in role-playing. <laughs> objectively, yes, of course. It is, it is, yeah. it is because Chaos AM was at that time at the vanguard. Mm. Because let's, let's look at the evidence. Call of Cthulhu. Yes. Stormbringer. Yes. And this. Yes. And I think this, we didn't realise at the time, because when we did that open box with Eddie, when we did it, 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 he saw that as a lost opportunity. He didn't know what to do with it. Mm. It was passed around. We didn't know what to do with it. But looking at it now, you realise this is groundbreaking stuff. It's groundbreaking stuff, and you you really would know what to do with it now. It would be great to replay it again. Maybe we will. Yeah, we definitely should. We should, yeah, replay it. Um, Yeah, it, it it would be very, very good. And that's why I find it fascinating, this period of time of uh, role-playing games, because you had like the first wave of people exploring dungeons, and then yeah. you get something like this, which is asking you to look at things a little bit differently. And, and I would say as well, reading it, it's as good as anything produced nowadays. Yes. So we, um, 
we often look at modern adventures, so we're running a few, aren't we? You're running Two-Headed Serpent, I'm running Dragon Heist, and one or two things like that. And, you know, modern, more contemporary adventures and scenarios are better put together and better written than they were back in the day. But looking at this, it does, it holds, it's, it, it sort of, you know, holds together well, doesn't it? It holds up well by comparison. It is very, very good. Yeah. It's, as good, it's as probably as good as, if you bought it today, you wouldn't think this is from 1981. No, I would. I would say. I mean, obviously, some of the games, the, the stated stats for the NPCs would be a clue. Chivalry and Sorcery. But put that aside. If you look at the actual source material and the maps and everything, it's as good as anything. Yeah. That you would find now. And although this is, you know, we refer to it as a generic product. It, you're right. It, as we were saying earlier, it's about nine different systems. Yeah. 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 And. The thing that struck me when we opened it was this Greg Stafford, how to use this book, yeah. the instructions on mm. how to use the book. Yeah. Because this, I think this is Greg Stafford um, making a pitch across those different uh, game yeah. Um, yeah. Ty- types um, to a different audience, isn't it? Because, you know, D&D players, TNT players, uh, fantasy trip players and yeah. saying there's a different way of approaching role-playing games. Mm. That's very, yeah, it's a very good article because it does it does make that point that city adventures, you need to run them differently. And I suppose Thieves' World comes into being at a time when people, you know, role-playing is becoming more popular, but people are doing things like D&D modules, which are going to the Temple of Elemental Evil and kill stuff and either get the treasure or save the village, that kind of thing. And even even RuneQuest stuff, so things like Borderlands, were still very much a series of adventures which involved you going in somewhere, uh, killing things, rescuing someone, that kind of stuff. And what Greg Stafford does is points out that you need to run a city adventure slightly differently, I think. Significantly differently, I'd oh, yeah, significant, yeah, yeah. Because he, he kind of suggests, he doesn't say this, but what he sort of suggests is that one of the keys to running a city adventure is to, for it to be less adversarial, I would say. He doesn't use that word. Mm. But whilst, you know, as we all know, uh, role-playing games are not about winners and losers and the games master's not be, trying to beat the players. And that, that's true. But it's fair to say in a dungeon or a high-risk environment, shall we say. You, you are, as a games master, or were back then, putting traps on the doors, putting traps in the corridors, yeah. putting a poison dart in the chest. Making it dangerous. Making it dangerous. And I think what Greg Stafford points out in the article is that don't take that approach with a city, because whilst a city is dangerous, don't make it so that everyone they meet wants to kill them and every night sleep in the tavern is they have to keep watching the tavern rooms because I remember doing things like that back in the day yeah you know right. we, and I think that's where we got it wrong you know, Ju- jury rigging a trap on the door yeah, just in yeah, case yeah, yeah you're can. in the tavern and you're putting a trap on the door just in case boarding up the windows and keeping watch and I, I think what Greg Stafford's saying is that's a bit daft yeah cities are dangerous but they're not inherently I think he uses the phrase they're not, they're not inherently hostile the wilderness and the, the the dungeon is inherently hostile, but a city isn't isn't inherently like that. Yeah, and I think that's a 
They say that's a significant shift in the way you play it. Yeah, and I, that's why I think it is significant rather than a slight change. Yeah. Because what he's inviting you to do in this article is to say, inject some spontaneity into the game. And well, he, he, he doesn't say the words, don't make it adversarial. But what he does say, the words he uses, is make it cooperative. Yes. It's a cooperative activity. Yes. Work with the players to agree what you want to achieve in a session. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting bit that isn't it, where he says that about prior to the session, agree with the players what the players want to achieve. And nowadays, that's probably not such a weird idea, but it certainly would be in '81 because yeah. the whole idea was, you know, right, I'm the games master. You know, you're going to meet someone in the tavern who's going to have a job for you. And they're going to send you somewhere, and you're not really going to decide what what this is about. You'll be given the story, whereas what he's saying is. You know, but it was more more in keeping with the way things are played now. Yeah, but this is nineteen eighty one. Nineteen eighty one. I thought I think it um, predates his pre, uh, Prince Valiant approach mm. because he he gives tips on um, what you should do. So focus on the background. So understand the yeah. milieu that you're creating. That as a games master, you need to be able to present that, and he encourages the uh, oral storytelling method of looking for sensual details not just what you can see and hear but yeah. what you can smell yeah. and what does it feel like and make it a tangible experience yes and he talks about moving from the generic to the specific yeah and so it's all these tips that would go on to yeah. color story uh, orientated and he doesn't games. he doesn't quite say improvise but what he points out is that a city adventure will require you to improvise more because players you know doesn't say the word sandbox but that, that's what he is isn't it that's what he'd say nowadays he, talk, he does talk about the idea that you've got to um, be more prepared as a games master and the player as well to improvise and there's a, there's a great phrase in it isn't there where he talks about uh, turning from the prepared paths to the rooftops of adventure Wow. Which is that you know idea, yeah. isn't it? That it's not as it's not going to be. You come to a door. There's a corridor beyond it with two more doors. Limit the limited thing of a dungeon. The limited door. There's two doors. Oh, there's a way we came. What do what do we want to do? Yeah, a city. You could have players deciding. Hey, maybe we'll go here. Maybe we'll go there. You know, yeah. an idea that will pop into someone's head. And there's it's far more scope for that in a city. Yeah, and it's conveying that it's a place teeming with life. Yeah. So Sanctuary has got all that life can yeah. offer and yeah. it's there to be explored. So before we go dig into it, um, it's good to consider, because you're at the moment running mm. uh, Dragon Heist, which yeah. follows this model in a way, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does, yeah, to a point, yeah. yeah I mean, it's, uh, it is an adventure built into it. There's an adventure built in, but at the same time it does give you water deep with all its NPCs and bits and pieces that, you know, you could in theory run water run Dragon Heist and then stay in water deep and do lots of side quests and investigate different bits and pieces. So yeah. So what does it give you? Does it, it pop it, does it give you the population of Waterdeep to play with with some of the motivations? Well it on? gives you not yes and no it, it gives you an adventure and it gives you lots of different approaches to the adventure uh, so there are, are four villains and you pick your villain um, 
for the adventure. And the other three villains are fleshed out and all their associates are fleshed out. So you've got those as well to play around with. Um, and also you've got lots of NPCs, lots of factions, and each faction has different quests and jobs for the players that you can pick and choose. And in a way, there's no way, I, there's no way you could fit it all in. I don't think you could fit it all in. You have to pick and choose what you want to do with it. And all the bits, if you like, the leftovers that you don't use could be the basis for other adventures within the, within the city. So it doubles, I think, as a, a, a city adventure, but also a setting as well yeah. in the background of, of all the bits and pieces that you, wouldn't, you will not be able to use for yeah. fear of confusing the player. It is, it is a cast of thousands, it feels like that anyway. Oh, it's a, it's just cast of thousands and I've not, not used them all, you know. That's yeah. what I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot in it and I think the way to play it is to navigate players through it in a particular way and all the bits on the, around the edges you could use again. You know. It gives you an opportunity to set up base in a tavern to you acquire a tavern yes, as do. players, don't you? Yes, yeah, yeah. That's good for yeah. encountering some of the... Yeah denizens of Waterdeep but it's a weird place Waterdeep isn't it because you get cheap, yeah. cheap by Joe you get some really high level people next to well that's one of the odd things I monsters think. yeah and it, yeah that in some ways I think that's a bit of a, there's it's a bit of a flaw in it in some ways I think one of the flaws is it's a bit convoluted but I just find these these wizards of the coast books, campaign, but they're all, they're all convoluted, I always think. I don't know why, they just seem like, what a convoluted way of doing things, but, you know, we'll leave that aside. But one of the problems with it, and I think this, this comes back, brings us back to Thieves' World, actually. One of the problems with it is, because it's D&D, it has some quite high-level characters in it. And because it's D&D, it begs the question, what are these people doing in a city? Why has this 10th level rogue got a tavern room and he's acting like a borderline petty criminal? Why has a 12th level magic user got a potion shop? 12th level? You know, they're like, they're like demigods. What are, what are they doing in a city? Yeah. Running, Setting a up shop. running a potion shop with all the kind of HR issues that matter, you know, the yeah. tax and the money, you know. Oh, I'm a 12th level sorcerer. Oh, you really? What are you doing? Well, I've got this sharp little shop. Living in a tower somewhere, shouldn't you? Yeah. Firing lightning bolts out <laughs> the windows for a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> opening opening portals to other dimensions. Instead, instead you've got a franchise of boots on the. Yeah, economy. you've got yeah the equivalent of boots. You know, yeah, <laughs> very odd. But I, I think it comes back to these world because these world has the um, stats in these nine different systems, doesn't it? For yeah. all the characters, and when you look through it, you realise, or I did. Not at the time, but looking at it now, you realise that some systems are better for city adventures than others. others. Yeah. And I would put, I would say, D&D then and now is not really a game for city adventures because it's a game where you become high-powered relatively quickly. And once you become high-powered... It just seems odd that you're in a city rubbing shoulders with ordinary folk. It becomes a bit of a superhero game. And it's true in, in that. There's a character called, just to pick, a, pick characters that are around, but there's a character called um, Ms. Wraith. And he's a 12th level magic user in the book, AD&D, 
stacked top of them. Mad you. So it doesn't seem sit quite right that he's living in a city with all that power. You know. Whereas when you look at that character in RuneQuest stats, he's much more low powered. Yeah, he's got a lot of battle magic and he's got some rune magic, but he's nowhere near as powerful as a 12th level magic user in D&D. So I do think that some games lend themselves to city adventures far more than others, I would say. Yes, and uh, it is, I mean, these worlds or sanctuary itself is fairly underpowered, isn't it, in terms of magic? Yes. You do get the yeah. occasional. Um, in, in some of the stories there are magical happenings but it is low powered fantasy isn't it quite gritty mm. in, in a way so something like RuneQuest yeah is probably RuneQuest works suited. and yeah but yeah you, you look at some of the other um, in some ways you wonder whether travel although it seems an odd fit you wonder whether traveller might work as well really you know they'll take the magic out of it and just have it as a kind of you know rogue planet somewhere dodgy folk what I was uh, trying to do is compare the heights in the different systems <laughs> to see whether <laughs> whether consistent whether they're consistent he's, 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 he's only six foot in RuneQuest so he's six foot two in here yeah yeah so I've been spending time doing <laughs> that productively yeah productively <laughs> comparing the heights of the different <laughs> characters if indeed the system Considers concerns it every height. Some some systems do, some don't. Yeah, some it matters. In it some matters. Does it matter? Does it matter? I don't yeah. know. Chivalry and sorcery. Yes, it does. Well, I think it. I think we knew that because we we know we've never played it, but we know the stories. Chivalry and sorcery, crunchy, too much detail, too crunchy. Yeah, trying to find that character. So, your man uh, Misrath. Yeah. He is, he, he weighs 125 pounds. Don't know what that means. I need that in English. No, no, I mean stones, stones and pounds, right? Not <laughs> do that. Uh, and his height is 5'6. Right? 5'6. Right, he's a bit on the short he's side. He's on the short side, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. he's got a small man. He's chivalry uh, so he's syndrome. Chivalry sorcery. He locked himself away and decided to learn magic because he was magic. embarrassed. Yeah, about his height. So let's have a see how, how, uh, what he is in RuneQuest. Now they don't give you height in RuneQuest, but let's see if the size reflects that. No. Yes. Misery. Size twelve. Average height. That's average, isn't it? Yeah. That's not five six. Although I don't know, is it? In the middle, in medieval times, the Dark Ages, oh, which is the equivalent of people are a lot shorter, weren't they? In Traveller. Yeah, okay. Does it give size in Traveller? It does, yeah. Just give a string of numbers. Like a national insurance number, isn't it? Misereth in, uh, in Traveller. Yeah. He's um, 1.6 metres tall. Don't know what so that means either. It, it's not even consistent in the it's measurement. It's not even consistent. But what powers has he got in Traveller then? He's a sorcerer in all the other systems. But he's, he's famed for maintaining over 100 spells. He does this by casting secondary spells over less mages to tap their power. But it's Traveller, there's no He's got a high psionic rating, 11. So it's psionics, it must need to be psionics, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think it kind of brushes over it. It glosses over that bit and you land in your spaceship and you meet a wizard. It's very disappointing disappointing that Tones and Trolls is a bit of a half-hearted thing. It doesn't have all of them, does it? It doesn't have all of them and it doesn't give the weight and height. Loses points for that. 
Yeah, because yeah, that is a thing in tunnels and trolls, isn't it? On the carriage sheet, I think weight and height. It is, yeah. Sheet. Yeah, why were they not bothering? Um, at Grugmeet, Cat, one of our uh, regular games masters, yeah. is running a game of tunnels and trolls set in Sanctuary, yeah, yeah. the Vogue yeah. Unicorn. Yeah, this is a great exciting. Like I say, it would be good to uh, it would be good to run stuff in it now. But as then, I think uh, you go back to the Greg Stafford article, don't you? Which of course we we mustn't have read. <laughs> we mustn't have read. We, we must have read for some read reason. It. Read it. Or if we did, it didn't sink in because uh, we were quite young. Um, but I do think we probably didn't know what to do with it because we that leap from regular adventures or what we would consider regular adventures to something in a city and all the things Greg Stafford talks about are things we wouldn't quite have got our head round. What I think we did is look for the adventures didn't we in the straightforward linear yeah. adventures yeah. tell yeah. us what to do and you don't get that in it. No. What you do get um, is a series of encounter tables which I'm going to go through but well, there's another good essay in here by uh, Robert Asprin, who, of course, was the editor of the original mm. anthology. And he says something that I think is striking, because he talks about the full circle, that role-playing games were influenced by novels. Yeah. And his concept of these world was developed as a consequence of playing games, playing role-playing mm. games because he saw the potential of having a yeah. collaborative approach to getting multiple authors developing a setting yeah. together. And, and that comes across, doesn't it? Because when you do read the novels and the short stories, they, they do feel like they're connected to gaming in some way. Yes. Don't they? they have an echo of gaming running through them. Because that was always one of the things with uh, fiction, wasn't it? You would look constantly look for science fiction and fantasy that you could replicate as a game you know oh this would be great as a game but often it was disappointing is the wrong word but it it didn't quite fit did it because the people writing a novel were writing novels and they were writing novels before role-playing games were invented but thieves world you know predates kind of Dragonlance and all that rubbish doesn't it um and it does feel like it's got a connection with gaming so there's a logic to it fitting together like that Hang on, I just heard a thousand souls screaming across the world as you just said, Dragonlance and all that rubbish. Well, I didn't, we never liked Dragonlance, did we? I think we tried reading it. I think the problem with Dragonlance was it went the other way. It seemed like it was too connected to role-playing, so it seemed a bit clunky. Started another war now, haven't we? We've already got all the Tolkien fans after us. <laughs> the Dragonlance fans. So Probably the same people. So the circle is complete twice over. We have heroic fantasy providing inspiration for fantasy role-playing games. Then the games influence a shared setting anthology. Now that anthology is available in a role-playing format. Round and round it goes. And for all of our sakes, I hope it never stops. That's Robert Aspin. Robert Aspin, who I believe, um, when he died, he had a Terry Pratchett book in his hand. He died reading Terry Pratchett. Did he? Mm. Apparently so. Yeah. I don't think Jerry Pratchett had anything to do with that. He had a heart attack, but, yeah, you know, that's, yeah, apparently so. Or well, was it Mort? 
Yeah. He'd like to think, I don't, I don't know what it is, he'd like to think not. Yeah. But, you know. Is that, is that kind of factoid? I think it is a factoid. It's on Wikipedia, so it must be true, mustn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> one more of those after the news. Uh, right, before then, let's have a go at these, these encounter tables. Okay. So, where would you like to go in the city? I think I'd like to go to the maze. The maze. But you know, I only those who But see. I seek death and sell it. Oh, one, no. no, I don't seek death, I sell it. You wouldn't want to seek death, would you? No, would you? I don't know. I don't know. Something ambiguous, isn't it? Only those who seek death or sell it enter the maze. So this is the labyrinth of foul-smelling alleyways winding between the old decaying buildings and it's the roughest part of sanctuary and these where the fugitives of justice converge. So, first of all... I want to go there now. Hey, you've not sold it to me. Don't ever become a travel agent. (laughs) (laughs) Don't just book it, dirk it. <laughs> so let's roll on this uh, with this percentile dice. Okay. okay. Are you going in the day, evening, or are you going in the I night? I think I'd have to go at night. I think um, being a player character in a role playing game, I have to go at night. I think the games master would probably engineer it, so I have to go at night. Here it goes. Okay. You hear a scream. Oh, okay. So I need to roll a d20. Alright, d20. Okay. A man with a torch in one hand and a bottle of whiskey in the other is bending over a man strapped to a table. <laughs> Alright, okay. That was what I was expecting. <laughs> well, no, I don't know what you've walked into here. You walked what, it, yeah. what, what are you going to do? Walk away. <laughs> in the shadows are two armed warriors. And what's happening is a man's got a wound, has had a wound, and it's been cauterised. Oh, right. So I suppose you see a wounded man on the table, and you'd have to, it's a dilemma, isn't it? What do you do, yeah? Is he being tortured? Is he being helped? Yeah. Again, though, you come back to the game system, don't you? If it was a 10th level fight with 78 points, you'd say, don't worry about it, it's just a scratch. Yeah. Rune quest is a bit more, you know, with his left leg, leg cauterised. So that's a general maze, but there's also encounter tables for the bazaar, the street of red lanterns, and downwind. But you can also um, generate your own businesses. You've got mm, a little set yeah. of tables here to generate your own sector of. Uh, that's quite good, isn't it? That. Yeah. So I think because it doesn't it doesn't map it out completely, does it? No. It just maps out the relevant bits, the interesting bits, and then other bits. You can. That's like a random random dungeon generator. It's like a random, you know, city generator. Which again, yeah. it's quite a good idea, I think. Yeah, it's it's made for adventure, isn't it? That's what mm. it's good about it. Yeah. Very very good. Yeah. Yeah. Strange to say it after all these years, isn't it? It's one of those things that you didn't. You never. We never quite forgot Thieves' World. No. We never quite, and it was like I say, it's passed around amongst us all, wasn't it? You know, we all had it at one point or other. And yeah. I think I might have got it because I had Dragon Quest and Traveller, didn't I? But again, never quite. So, like Irelian, because mm. this is what people say about Irelian. Yeah. Thieves World and Irelian are probably the greatest adventures that people didn't play. <laughs> never played, yes. Yeah, yeah. 
because it's so influential, isn't it? Mm. It, it yeah. changed. It was a step change in both the quality and production of the yeah. supplement, but also the content. It, it was making people think differently. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. So, this is past hands when we were younger. Yeah. If it was passing hands now, would you fight me for it? Fight you for it? Yeah, fight you for it to run a game in it. Would you want to run something? I in would it? want to run a game in it actually. I must admit, looking through it again, did fire up a certain enthusiasm of thinking this this would be great to run a few games in, wouldn't it? You know, you could really do something with it now, because our attitudes towards it are different than back then. I don't feel as inhibited by it as I was then. You know, but partly because the books seem a distant memory. I think, again, one of the problems with it was Simon was a big fan of the books and the books were books existed and were on the shelves at the time and it, did, it always had that problem of breaking the world. Mm. But now I, I don't think I would... And looking at it again, I didn't see it in terms of the books. I saw it as just a role-playing supplement and that felt strangely liberating. a liberating thing because I yes. thought, oh, I could do what I want with this, you know. And I wouldn't even have to run it for those one of those nine systems. I could run it for something else. So what would you run it for? I don't know. A dungeon world would be good. Yeah. yeah. I quite like that tiny D6 system. Tiny D6 dungeon would be good. Nice, simple system. You so don't yeah. really need the... I suppose what I'm saying is they, they, they spend a lot of time giving you the stats for the characters. All you really need, and the best bit, is the little bit at the beginning before the stats where they give you a paragraph or two, the character notes about each character, don't they? Yeah. And in a way, you don't need the stats because what you can do is just build the character yourself out of that, those notes, can't you? Yeah. And, and build the kind of character you want that character to be. Yes. You know. I think I said in the earlier part of that, you wanted to do the factional element of uh, Thieves' World and all the different competing forces, it blades in the dark. Yeah, oh yeah, blades blades in the dark, itself, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the interesting things, reading it. Uh, the stats was the least interesting bit, in some respects. But, but I think back in the day, the stats were possibly the most interesting bit. Yeah. That feeling that you need the stats. When you've got all the stats of all the characters, all good. But now I was thinking, why do I need that? You know, if I want Jubal to be a particular type of character with a particular set of skills, I'll decide. Not, you know, not the book. <laughs> and as we're recording this, it's a year since uh, Greg Stafford passed away. Yes. And I can't think of a more fitting uh, tribute to him than playing in this. Run some games in there. Yeah. Because yeah. that article, if, it, if nothing else, that article inspires you doesn't it to it does yeah it does doesn't it even now after all these years you read it and think oh yeah 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 that's the way to do it yeah. <laughs> that's the way to play it right there's only one way to solve this arm wrestle <laughs> arm wrestle look on the resistance table 50-50 till next time goodbye bye I won the arm wrestle and I have a little Thieves World project in development that I'm planning with our friend from What Would the Smart Party Do podcast, Baz Stevens, author of The King of Dungeons, which will be a patron exclusive to be stored in our Grog Locker, our online resource page. 
watch this space. After all, this world is all about collaboration. At the time of recording, I'm getting ready for Grog Meet, our annual meetup in Manchester. As I mentioned, there's even a session of these world tunnels and trolls planned from the newly appointed director of RPG Haven, Kat Simmons-Smith. Congratulations, Kat. I'm very much looking forward to it. We'll be sharing the live interview with Paul Fricker in a future grog pod. Blaine and I have been in a production meeting and planned the next four episodes and made an editorial decision. No more actual plays. We planned them as a sample of play to give you a taste of how a game worked, but we decided that we don't like listening to them, so why should you? This podcast was originally conceived as a sort of memoir and we've been reminded of a story of our experiences of LARPing that we're going to include in the grog pod soon. I love hearing the listeners' stories about how you used to play back in the day. The next grog zine, due out in April 2020, will try and capture some of your stories, some of the characters you played with, the handouts and the misadventures you had back in the day, as a kind of social history of gaming in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Thanks to all of you who've contacted me with submission ideas so far. I'll be in touch with you after Grogmeet in November to discuss and develop the ideas. Please get in touch via dirkthedice at gmail.com to be involved in the project. There's more detail on the site at grognardfiles.com. The podcast will always be free. The Patreon tips in the hat support what we do and encourage us to do more. Thank you for all of you. Many of you who have been contributing for a while now. Thank you for your continued support. We really do appreciate it. I don't think I uh, stole Eddie's copy back in the day. It was a long time ago. I'm pretty sure it was exchanged for a copy of Dark Side of the Moon on cassette. Ah well. Adios, amigos.